For our Old Testament lesson today, we read from Micah, a prophet of Judah in the time of Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos in the 8th century BC, before and after the invasion of the northern kingdom of Israel. Micah's condemnation of the people was based on their obsession with self-interest at the expense of justice for the people. Like all prophets, his message of justice and judgment is wrapped in hope and confidence in God's eternal and ultimate goodness. First, a lament. Jesus will quote this in the Gospel reading. The faithful have disappeared from the land, and there is no one left who is upright. They all lie in wait for blood, and they hunt each other with nets. Their hands are skilled to do evil. The official and the judge ask for a bribe, and the powerful dictate what they desire. Thus, they pervert justice. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of their sentinels, of their punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a friend. Have no confidence in a loved one. Guard the doors of your mouth from she who lies in your embrace. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies are members of your own household. And these verses, perhaps the most famous and well-known of any of Micah's words and of any prophets. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The Gospel lesson today comes from Matthew 10. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Let us pray. Gracious God, May your Holy Spirit be with your servant and with your people as we discern your word for our time and our place. Amen. Good morning. morning. Thanks. Oh, you're alive. (laughs) You respond to good morning. uh, Not all churches do. Let me tell you about a story that I heard from one of our guests at United Theological Seminary. 
And he was an international student, and he was in Berlin to see an opera. And while waiting on the sidewalk, a car stopped by, and the window rolled down, and came the driver and asked for direction. Uh, Sir, will you please help me? I don't know where I am now. And he thought for a while and said, Right now, you're sitting in your car. (laughs) The guy was so shocked. Right now, you're sitting in your car. And then he asked, Sir, are you a theologian? Now he was one surprised. And said, how did you know that I am a theologian? Well, because your answer sounds profound, but not useful. (laughs) I like to be at least useful, and I hope it can be profound as well, too, this morning. So, let me reflect on our text and our context for today. Silence may protect us, but not forever. Silence, to paraphrase Jose Comblin, is a lie. It is a lie when truth needs to be spoken. What is the lie that we must be aware of, and of which we must speak up against and take the risk of offending many, including our close friends, and causing strife and divisions in our communities. It happens. I had my own experience with my own family. For almost 25 years, I did not say no to my father, not until when I became a pastor, and I said no. And there was a big difference in terms of our political views about the context, the Philippines. And that was the cause of strife or conflict. It's hard to talk about politics and religion, for example, even among family members. So sometimes when we gather, most likely we don't talk about it because it can be divisive. But beyond exposing the lie, what is it that we must dare even to speak like that of Jesus also. When we dare to speak, we can be considered demon-possessed or mad. Exposing the lie is becoming more and more challenging in a society in which the machineries of lying have become more pervasive and sophisticated. We need to develop critical eyes because what we see and hear may conceal reality. Mark Twain has this quip for us. If we do not read, we are uninformed. If we read, we are misinformed. Death of news and information is not the main issue here. Our biggest challenge is to sort out the profound from the trivial, or the sublime from the ridiculous, 
which are, of course, shaped by our values and our priorities. When two-thirds of today's newspapers are monopolists, what can we expect? An independent press, the third pillar of U.S. democracy, is under threat from media oligopoly. In its present form, this media growth, says Bill Myers, has one obvious consequence. There is more information and easier access to it, but it is more narrow in content and perspective so that what we see from the couch is overwhelmingly a view from the top. This view from the top dominates the airwaves and the major media outlets is the view that is also responsible for our current political, economic, and ecological woes. What is disheartening is that this view continues to deceive many, including the disenfranchised. This may explain why many of the world's poor, including here in the U.S., end up almost always vote against their own interest. Often, as one writer said, the disenfranchised adopt these upwardly mobile values and religious orientation of those who are above them because of their tenacious belief that in the end, the dream will save them, when in fact that dream is responsible for their own failures. Evangelists of neoliberal economics have made people believe that it will lift all boats. Quite the contrary. Instead of lifting all boats, it is lifting all yachts. Worse, the poor do not even have boats, and they are drowning in the tsunami of corporate profits. Worse still, the money that could be used to save people's lives is used to bail out corporations that have amassed huge profits. In the U.S. and around the world, people are dying before their time. John Bertrand Aristide has a story of this sickly body politic that is making people die globally and in his homeland, Haiti. He tells of a morgue worker who was preparing to dispose a dozen corpses. To the morgue worker's surprise, one body lifted himself off the table, shook his head, and declared, I am not dead. But the morgue worker responded, Yes, you are. The doctors say you are dead, so lie down. The sickly body politic that is causing the death of many cannot continue without other means of control, not just the media. The system of control is not complete without taking account of the role of the police, which has been militarized already, the military, judicial system, and the prison system. Thomas Friedman, enthusiastic supporter of corporate globalism does not conceal his views. He said, 
The hidden hand of the market will never work without a hidden fist. Sometimes it's not really hidden, it's brutal. McDonald's cannot flourish without McDonald Douglas, the designer of F-15. General Smedsley Butler's words resonate with Friedman's on the military's role in the spread of predatory capitalism. After 33 years and four months in the Marine Corps, General Butler had come to the understanding that he had been nothing than a gangster for capitalism. Pacifying the Dominican Republic for sugar companies, helping Mexico save for oil companies, making Honduras ready for fruit companies, and making it sure that Standard Oil went on its way unmolested in China. General Butler reminisced, saying, Looking back on it, I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was to operate his racket in three districts. I operated on three continents. Wherever we see predatory corporate interests at work, we see militarization, repression, and corruption. Wherever we see predatory corporate interests at work, we see violation of human rights in the most pervasive, sophisticated, and systemic ways. The country of my birth, the Philippines, is one of the most glaring places in the world where corporate interest and repression are clearly intertwined. Wherever you see mining, for example, you will see militarization, repression, and extrajudicial killings. Thirteen anti-mining activists had been killed since the new president of the country assumed office. The U.S. war on terror has been used as a pretext to protect corporate interests and the ruling elites of the country. These killings are well-funded and carried out in the name of the Philippine government's alliance with the U.S. war on terror and the government's counter-insurgency campaign. Adopting the ideology and rhetoric of counterterrorism from the U.S. war on terror, citizens, NGOs, and church bodies that call for the transformation of the Philippine society have been labeled terrorists. Relentless in its campaign to eliminate the enemies of the state, the Aquino administration has launched what it calls holistic approach under a culture of impunity, an approach that does not distinguish citizens who exercise their prophetic civil citizenship in the public square from armed combatants. The irony of ironies, the government that has proudly proclaimed to the world that it has abolished death penalty has replaced it with death squad. True, the larger majority is still silent, and sadly, this is true of many churches. 
Nonetheless, even as the number of victims is growing each day, the cries and protests of people are getting louder and mightier. In spite of the clear and present danger, the people have chosen not to be totally colonized by terror and tyrannized by fear. They have taken courage. Courage is not the absence of fear, but is founded on the belief that there is something greater than fear, which fear itself cannot hold us back from pursuing. Courage does not deny danger, but demands a full recognition of what is to be feared. But it is precisely at this point when, in the lines of Annie Drillard, we start feeling the weight of the atmosphere and learn that there is death in the pot. That is, when we learn what really is to be feared, that the atmosphere is ripe for the birth of courage. Knowing what is to be feared can paralyze us, but courage refuses to let that happen. Courage comes from the often neglected side of knowledge. In courage, we know not only what is to be feared, but also what is to be dared. What is to be dared is human dignity in the face of its desecration and violation. What is to be dared is the just and democratic society in the face of its corrosion to its very core. What is to be dared is the sanctity of life that is terrorized by the forces of death. These are reasons to dare, and dare we must. We must dare to pursue life and the values of truth, freedom, and justice through daring acts of crying out and expressing our outrage in public. But there is something more that courage requires us to dare and to do. The fate of the victims will remain sealed in the graveyard and the new tomorrow will not dawn on us if we do not transform our knowledge of what is to be feared and what is to be dared into a movement, into a movement. Daring to transform our knowledge of what is to be feared and what is to be dared into a movement is both crucial and urgent. It is crucial to effect change. You must be familiar with the words of Frederick Douglass. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, it never will. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. The journey is long and arduous. It is easy to be discouraged. If our political leaders, regardless of party line, have been held captive by corporate interest, if corporate interest has co-opted our political and legal institutions, there seems nothing left for us to do. 
The soil is fertile for despair and cynicism. Cynicism can easily replace lousy optimism. You know that the word cynic comes from the Greek word kun, K-U-O-N, or dog. A cynic is a person who barks in public and urinates on the leg of a table. Right? There are certainly thousands of reasons to pee and poop in the halls of power. But cynicism is not our vehicle for birthing the new tomorrow. Without a doubt, global predatory corporate interest is monstrous and complex. It is easy to be intimidated. One may argue that if everything is connected, then you can't change anything without changing everything. But you can't change everything, so that means you can't change anything. There is, however, a different, if not hopeful, reading of our globalized interconnections. Because we are globally spread and connected throughout the world, we have more and varied entry points of transforming the oppressive system and make a global difference. This is not to underestimate the power of the oppressive system, but we also have greater opportunities to undermine it and to create global democracy in which the rights of all are protected and promoted. We know that the journey is long and the challenges immense. But what is crucial is that we take the beginning steps. Moreover, these steps must be taken in companionship with others if we are to go far. Following Thich Nhat Hanh, if we are a drop of water and we try to get to the ocean as only an individual drop, we will surely evaporate along the way. To arrive at the ocean, we must go as a river. So people of the new tomorrow, the awakened and empowered multitude is our river. Let us go as a river and make justice roll down like waters and righteousness an ever-flowing stream until the new tomorrow dawns on us. Thank you.